I am delighted to be here again today with Ted Styritz. Did I Stiritz. say Styritz? Styritz, like the car. Sorry. Mm -hmm. um, Ted Styritz for another, and here's a pun, freewheeling conversation. <laughs> um, you did such an amazing job last time of getting us started um, on the work of D Daniel Toma. And so I'm going to let you do that again today. And I've been trying to read quite a bit of Stephen Talbot, who you introduced me to. What an amazing, incisive mind. Um, so I might come in with some of that. But in the meantime, let's get started with, with uh, Daniel Toma. Thank you so much. Yeah, then that'll be great. I, I've actually been um, spending some time wandering around in some of the older epic poems that I haven't gotten around to. So I have not read any Talbot since the last time we spoke. Um, I did want to start with, and if I can pull it up here, there is a particular quote from early in the book that we didn't bring up last time. And I, I just thought that this is, this is such a great way to start and so well put. So he's, I set up your share screen if you want to share it on. Um, oh, I just have it written up in an early, oh. in an ugly word doc, and it's not okay. too long to quote. So, okay. so he says, he says this, he says, the common person, the academic were of one mind and were reciprocally dependent on each other. The philosopher needed common experience as the basis of thought, and the common man needed philosophy for the refinement and clarification of his thinking. And so when we, you know, we're getting into we're getting into this and at last last time we spoke quite a bit about the relationship that common human experience has with science and it struck me that you know all the conversations that are going on in this little corner of the internet i think on some level are trying to do this to to bring philosophy to the common things of life and to bring the common things of life to philosophy um and i just i just really appreciate that and i i think as much as people complain about the thinky talky, I think there's actually a pretty high degree of integration that a lot of people here are really doing in their lives. Um, and what, when we were at Chino, I, one of the things that I loved was how many of the people there were just doing stuff. You know, they're doctors and construction workers and mechanics and and artists. And um, yeah, there's this there's a surprisingly small fraction of the people there were you know, formally part of academia. And what Toma Part of what Tom is bringing up here, I think, is that ultimately philosophy finds its fulfillment in in exactly that, in bringing out the depths of reality to the everyday things of life, the th the the, com the, com the common human experience. Um, so I bring that up because we're probably going to end up talking a lot about really common things, stuff you know, not maybe not the esoteric stuff, but um, I wanted to start with a couple of things. One is, well, th yeah, this is a good spot. To, this is a good spot to start. I listened to your interview with, um, with DC Schindler, which I loved. And you brought up there this distinction between being and becoming. And Schindler, Dr. Schindler had some things to say there about we have this idea of perfection as being a static thing. And he's, he, I think my understanding was he very much disagreed with this idea that 
there's a sort of negative stasis to being that, or sorry, to perfection. That perfection leaves out the opportunity for change, or or some sort of dynamic dynamic interest to things. Is that? Did you do? Do you remember the part that I'm talking about there? Yes. Uh huh. Very much so. Yes. Wonderful. Okay. So then, in that case, I want to start with Daniel Thomas. I he 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 introduces three different kinds of perfection um, in this in later on in the book he calls it primary secondary and tertiary perfection so not you know not very original names but i i think i think the ideas that he's talking about they're actually incredibly elucidating looking at ourselves looking at life around us and so to to go through that the the first idea of perfection is with a person is essentially that you have like a well-formed body so you would say we That'd be something like bodily health, right? Your organs are the right shape, the right size, your biochemical processes are all running smoothly, et cetera, et cetera. But a person who's perfectly healthy and just sits on the couch all the time, you'd definitely think that something is wrong with them. So he 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 says that there's another level of perfection above primary perfection, which is the secondary perfection, which is something like developing your capacities. So it'd be learning how to speak well, learning how to cook, learning how to do um, carpentry, learning how to run. It, you know, there's just anything that you could, any sort of capacity that you develop. And then there's a tertiary form of perfection, which is the integration of that secondary perfection into some larger whole. So for a person that would be things like a family or a community or a government um, or an organization, these things that are above you. And what, so the first thing that strikes me about that kind of three levels of perfection is that it works all over the place. So I was thinking about that and I was thinking about protein folding, protein structure and protein folding. And how, how familiar are you kind of on the chemistry level with how with protein stuff? Well, I mean, I've certainly heard all the discussions about protein folding, but I wouldn't say that I know how to analytically. I mean, go for it. I mean, just okay. Great. So there's a lot of people who are familiar with it who listen. So Okay, great. So, so well, I was just... This isn't going to be very, is is more of a question of how basic should I, how, how, I, you know, I just don't like talking down to people, but proteins, you, po proteins are polypeptides. So they're, you, your, your cells take amino acids and strings them together and mm -hmm. they're, they're different. It's like 25 somewhere in there. It's been a while, but they all have slightly different chemical properties. And then, and then the, the, they have a, a common backbone essentially that links them together. And so As I understand there can be strings of different lengths. They're not all the same length, right? Some of them can be up to like a hundred proteins. And thousands, actually, thousands of polypeptides long. And so, so again, to go to, to tie this into the earlier conversation, one of the things that's interesting here is you can, in one sense, describe a protein by saying, describing the sequence of amino acids. Um, you know, it's, it's, uh, I, it's this one and then this one and then this one and then this one. As soon as we get going, I'm going to remember the names of them. It doesn't matter because I could I could spout the names off, but I don't know what any of them do. So <laughs> I just be showing off. Um, but you can you know it's it's like the strings strings of letters in a word. It's similar again to DNA base pairs, and in fact, there's that's what um, these main when we think when you think of a gene, what you're thinking of is generally speaking is these sequences of bases that three of which will correspond to one mm -hmm. polypeptide one amino acid and a protein and so you can in that sense you can fully describe chemically the 
what a what that protein is. It's A, B, B, F, G, um, ty you know, it's tyrosine. There's one of them, tyrosine. I knew they'd come back. Um, and, 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 and the thing is, is that that, if you just stretch the protein out, it doesn't really, it doesn't do anything and it, it'll flop around and it'll be in all these random, in these random configurations. But you, it, as soon as a protein, as a protein is being made, and then sometimes as it goes through further processing, it develops these folding structures. And so some, so the sort of the basic of it, basics are helices. So there'll be twists or they'll form these zigzaggy sheets. But then those zigzaggy sheets and uh, and and helixes and then other not really differentiated shapes yet fold up into a secondary structure, which is what you would then put then call the protein shape. And so if you've seen like a picture of a protein, generally that at this point you're getting there. It's it is a it's a, a chemical shape, and then you have what's called tertiary folding, which is where which some proteins go through. Well, they be, might be two or three or four or more proteins actually combined together to form some larger structure. And that primary, secondary, and tertiary perfection lies over, sits on that very nicely. You have your primary perfection, which is, did you go from the DNA to the protein to the amino acid sequence appropriately? If you didn't, right, something's wrong with it. But then you've got the second level, the second, the primary and secondary folding, something like secondary perfection. You've taken this sort of possible DNA, which is a string of amino acids and you've folded it into the right configuration and then that tertiary folding is something tertiary perfection where you have different things integrating together to form a functional whole now one of the things that's interesting about this is that you can be have a primary perfection and then have all kinds of issues higher up so prions have, have you heard of prions by any chance only in connection to mad cow disease yeah great Back so Kreutzfeldt, yeah <clears throat> So they're they're horrifying, frankly. Um, and, and you'll see. I mean, you'll 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 probably see why why people they they get into people. I was going to say get into people's heads. That's a really terrible way of putting it because they actually do. <laughs> there's there's some indication that several several really horrible uh, neurodegenerative diseases like um, mad cow disease or laughing disease um, are caused by buildup of prions. But they're the they're misfolded proteins. So they're they're the right sequence of amino acids are perfect protein but they get folded the wrong way and for some through some pathway that no one has identified they actually manage to convert properly folded proteins into the misfolded protein so it's this sort of it's a it's a failure on this higher level of order that is um self-perpetuating it mm. When I hear when I hear Jonathan Peugeot talk about demons, the first thing that I always think of is prions, <laughs> because there's like this very clear um, correspondence there. So, one of the, the, what I'm trying to get at here with this idea of perfection and it not being a static thing is that you when you when you think about primary, secondary, and tertiary perfections, they're actually you have to move through them. Any kind of being that's trying to get that's trying to be perfect actually has to move through them. So a child, a child can't integrate into society and a child doesn't have any abilities except a few that are related to a baby. And so it in order to end up being a person, like John Verveke was talking about, you know, we've got this job of of making people. Um you have to move through this, this this process of development to go from potential to actuality. 
And that is, first of all, that's a very interesting process. And in the sense of it's, it's certainly dynamic. And it's also in the, in the case of people, something of an adventure. And yet at the, you can have Daniel Toma brings this up. You can have a perfect baby, right? So there's this, there's a, a state of perfection that's, that's right to a baby, but you wouldn't want a 20 year old to have that state, right? So there's this, you can, the, the point of all of this is to say that per, our idea of perfection and our idea of something being static, don't, there's nothing intrinsically static about perfection. Whenever we look around us in the world, this movement toward the perfection, you can have perfection all the way through a process of change or a process of development or a process of actualization. So uh, what is, how does that strike you? Does that, does that shed any light on this idea, this distinction of being and becoming and perfection versus say lack? Well, one of the things that popped into my head was um, the story that Jordan Peterson used to tell about his son when his son was three and vulnerable and tiny um jordan peterson wanted to provide him with the means of not being vulnerable and so he thought it through and he thought well if i could make him 10 feet tall so he could fight off any you know any person who wanted to injure him and if i could put a shield around him or if i could uh, give him a body armor you know um if i could make his arms into weapons and so he imagines this whole thing of how to make his son not vulnerable in order to let him be in the world. He said, but then of course, what I love about him is completely gone. Mm. Right. So, mm. so what that says to me is that perfection becomes static when it's something that the human person tries to impose upon a structure that has its own perfection and is moving towards its own higher perfections. But if we come in and try to impose a perfection upon it, then that would be, be a static thing. Mm. But perfection in itself is not static. And the other thing that came to my mind was from reading Stephen Talbot, he quoted I think the guy he was quoting was named Hortoft. And this guy said, um, organisms are not beings, they are doings. They're not beings that do, they are doings that be. And that it's that, that very activity <clears throat> that identifies, um, that identifies life. Yeah. Can I, can I rip on that for a second? Please. Okay. So that, the, the first thing that hit my mind is actually, uh, it's a little adjacent to that, but a quote from a, a professor that I, I really love the stuff that he has to say, his name is Dr. David Fagerberg. And he taught, he says, he says, of, he says, of, he's retired now. He's like, of the three or four things that I, that I said that I really liked, you know, here's one of them. And he says, a person is a, a human is a verb until they're a noun when a human being becomes a saint. And, and I love that because it gets at this notion of being as a verb. And we tend to think of, we, we, I mean, we, we've sort of converted human being into a noun in the sort of Barfieldian way that we were talking about, right? We've, we've ossified human being into, well, a noun, just a noun to say a, a human, um, but really, the little bit of exposure that I've had to 
again, to the medieval notion of being, and as it's been taken up in the sort of the 20th century Thomas, is their conception of being is something much more um, active. It's something that a being participates in. And this all has to do with their notion of how we talk about God as the cause of causes and the and being itself, rather than uh, what is what is Paul Vanderclay called that notion of God, the the bit the the meta thing in the sky or something like that. That God is you know God is some some thing amongst other things. He's the biggest and he's the best thing, but he's but he's a thing. Versus when you get into this notion of being as a verb, you you start to it's exactly what you're saying. You start to see existence is something that's much more dynamic and so the schoolmen the, the scholastics looked at that and they said okay well if i w- am a being and being is a verb and i do that to myself right that's a per- self-perpetuating act then something that has being cannot start its being that being has to come from somewhere else and we see this all over the place but their point was if everything that we see around us has contingent being then there must be some non-contingent being. There must be some causable causes. This is the sort of uh, intellectual necessity that they saw for God, for for a theistic view of the world, and the sort of classical theism versus maybe the the Enlightenment notion of God was something much more, let's say, a, a ontologically necessary to the universe. So I really okay. So I was I was reflecting on how could I sum up what Daniel Tome was talking about in the middle portion of his book, and what I came to was something like the proper view of the universe is one that is hierarchical and ordered towards intelligence. And I think I think probably a lot of your listeners are going to be more. I, you you could tell me better than I could, but maybe more comfortable at this point with the idea of hierarchy being an intrinsic part of reality. What do you think about that? Yes, yes, of course. So, and, and, you know, we talked about, I know we talked a lot about that in terms of, you know, being you and you and I are hierarchical beings internally, right. With this, what, what in science is called like this is called, you know, emergence, right. This, This idea that you can have chemistry and then layered on that is cellular biology and layered on that is tissue structures and layered on that is organs and layered on that is the organism. And, like we're we're work we're working towards something that acknowledges a much greater degree of understanding of the top-down operation, which I I've been listening to some more Wolfgang, Dr. Wolfgang Smith, and I think this is his vertical causality. Mm-hmm. I think this corresponds to his idea of vertical causality, not just horizontal causality. Great. So there's this we, we talked about organisms as causal lo- loci, as in I am like I'm a causal locus. What I do is, is I cause me to continue to propagate through time that's something like my form that's that's my formal cause that's that's what allows me to persist and also allows you to recognize me as me uh so there's there's this i there's this notion there that as you move towards life i'm i just lost my throat a little bit i want to pick it up again hold on vertical causality great okay the vertical causality so there's this notion that as you move through this hierarchy of organisms, the way that we should understand how the hierarchy of the universe is organized is not by, say, power or complexity, which is generally how people think about 
hierarchies. You know, the most powerful is at the top, the most complex is at the top. Daniel Toma, following the following the schoolmen, organizes the universe based on the how inward movement is in things. So what does that mean? Movement in the broadest sense. So we would anything that you would call change would also be included in movement. Thinking, intellection, that would be included in movement. Anything when you look at a rock and you say it's not doing anything, right? That would be a kind of there's no movement. You pick the rock up and you throw it through the air, now it has a kind of movement. You break it, there's a kind of movement. But then you look at a plant and there's all sorts of movement going on in a plant. Now you may not be able to see it, but it's definitely happening. And there's a whole and you can see, you can sort of see there's a whole nother level of movement that animals have that plants don't have. And then there's a whole nother level of movement. And this is where it starts to get interesting. There's a whole nother level of movement that uh, people have, humans have that other animals don't have, which is seems to be the life of the intellect. It's the intellect, and the and the, and the schoolmen saw this as as their sort of their three different kinds of souls that animated things, right? I mean, think of the funny thing is is how much of this stuff is just baked into our language already. You know, it's you say an inanimate object, and it feels like you say are speaking in scientific terms, what you're saying is the thing doesn't have a soul, <laughs> right? It's inanimate. And this is another great point that Thomas, Toma, Toma brings up. So I want to, I want to, I want to walk around this idea that the universe is fundamentally hierarchical and is ordered towards intelligence in the medieval sense of intelligence, not in the artificial intelligence form of the sense of intelligence. We don't have words for, we don't have a independent word for non-living things. And we don't have an independent word for non-being. Think about it. We have we have not we have living and non-living, and we have being and non-being. So linguistically speaking, we've already ordered the creation first around being itself, and then around living beings. Somehow that's actually more fun because I mean, it, isn't that totally the reverse of? what you hear from someone, I was listening to an interview with Neil deGrasse Tyson, and this is, you know, he's like, it's all physics. And then we build chemistry on top of that. And then we build biology on top of that. But linguistically, and I know you've read enough Barfield to believe that there's definitely some truth baked into our etymology and structure of language. We, language always moves towards life as being more fundamental than non-life, which is, Really, maybe you maybe you can't overstate how important that is to understand. So I've I've been I've been talking for a while, Karen. I please jump in at any point um, <laughs> if you've got anything. Um, well, language always moves towards life rather than yes. non-life. I just want to get this down because that's an important point. But um, I also wanted to say. And I think I got this from Talbot, but this is one of those things that also you just see everywhere, scales everywhere, that the, the you that you are right now is different than the you that you were yesterday. Mm -hmm. If for no other reason than that some of your cells have died, other cells have um, generated, you probably have a loss of some brain cells, but you have a gain of other brain cells. Um, you might be minutely shorter than you were yesterday because that happens as we get older, you know? So, um, plus you've probably learned some things that have made you a different person today than the person you were yesterday. Yes. The person you are tomorrow and next week and next year and 10 years from now is going to be a different person than the person you are today. Not just person, but a different being than you are 
today. You you might you'll be the same person, but you'll yes. be a different functioning body. Yes. Okay. I, I, okay. What what I want to tie into that is um, I just had a really fascinating conversation with Neil DeGrade and Drew Garrett about music. Okay. And Drew brought up this idea that melody. Um, you can't have a melody at one moment in time. You can only have a melody if you have time because the notes move through time in order to complete the melody. And that when you're singing a melody, you have to have a memory of the notes that came before as well as a memory of the notes that are coming, a kind of expectation of the notes that are coming. And um, Neil brought up the idea, well, that's very like a scroll. If you have a whole story or narrative written out on a scroll and you have the top part rolled up tight so that it's not showing what's at the top and the bottom part is rolled up like this and all you can see is what's in the middle mm -hmm. and then you continue to read and it unscrolls so you have a memory of what came before but you are right in here at this center point mm -hmm. and i mean that's that's what we are. We're in this now with a memory of what was in the past. Our body has a memory of what was in the past. And our body yes. has a memory of what is to come, I think. Because I think that's what's happening at the cellular level that Michael Levin is always talking about how these cells know what to build and where to build it because they have some kind of a memory of yes. what is to come. Yes. So anyway, that's my... That's well, okay. Well, you opened that can of worms, so I'm about to go completely <laughs> off the rails with Daniel Tomo because everything that you're saying is so great. Okay, so <laughs> yes, so I've been first of all that connects really, really closely with, um, and it's just amazing. It's just amazing the way these conversations go because it's like this is all good stuff, and then you said that one thing, and it's like there's the thread. This is where we're gonna go. <laughs> so. St. Augustine, actually, who is one of the, I think my understanding is he's one of the first writers to ponder how we're placed in time. And he he's, he sees exact, that scroll thing he, you're talking about. It, the, obviously, you have the past, the present, and the future. And he identifies that the past with memoria, right? But it's remembering. So he identifies that with putting yourself together, right? The past, in order to exist now, you have to put yourself together from the past, then you exist in the moment with attention, right? You, you, your, that is your, your orientation towards the present moment is attention. And then you look towards the future with expectatio, with expectation. And that is, that's also the realm of work, right? So you, you work towards, you stretch forward towards and you expect. And so what you're talking about with the, with the cells there is exactly right. And if you remember back to our discussion last time, when we were talking about developmental biology, there was, we were talking about how do cells know their identity and they know their identity based on their history and their context. So their, their, their memory, their cellular memory and their cellular context, their cellular present lets them know what their future is going to be, what, which they self-actualize, right? And so there you see, you see that internalization of movement versus inanimate objects. The, cell, the cells don't just follow some passive path like a rock thrown through the air does, they're self-moving, they're self-completing, they form, they're, they're, they participate in their future, 
right? The future of a cell is different because of the actions that it takes about itself. Okay, so that's happening down at the bottom level, but it's obviously also happening up at the top level. And I love, I love this about music and about, and, and you, you're talking about a scroll, but it's true about narrative too. And my sister and I run, do a little podcast together. And we've been, this is maybe like the thing that we keep coming back to, which is what it is that stories are doing in us. And so I think one of the things that they're doing is, all right, so think about, think about this. If you're, there's a thing about stories and music that we call, we use phrases like timeless, you know, or some particular music takes you outside of yourself or something like that. There's this notion, obviously, in, a, in Christian theology of eternity, which is something that's fundamental. It is a state of existence that is fundamentally different from sequential temporal reality, which is what we're in. And as far back as St. Augustine went, we realized that we live in this present moment that is constantly slipping, right? We're constantly... Now, I've, you know, the now that I said is already gone. How do I, how do I, how do I exist in more than an infinitesimally small fraction of reality? You do that through right now, memory and expectation, looking back and looking forward. And St. Augustine actually brings up singing the Psalms, right? I saw your book, the, the, you know, the divine office, right? It's, it's in, when you're singing the Psalms, this is at least one of his examples is you're, you're gathering the context from everything you sang. You're, you're, you're using your attention to say the thing that needs to be said now, and you're looking forward to the expectation of resolution and insight in the future when you've gone through the whole thing. So my, my thought is this, when you have a narrative, it has to hold together in some way. Otherwise, it's not a narrative. It's not a story. It's just a, a sequence of things. There's some wholeness there of that sequence that you recognize. You say that is a story. Right. It be, mm -hmm. Just in the way that like I am different from, you know, 160 pounds of meat and bone on the floor somewhere ground up. That's not Ted. Right. I cohere somehow. Same thing with a story. And what a story does and I, a good story and good music does is, amongst other things, I don't want to say this is all it does. One of the things it does is it gives you a simultaneous awareness of a period of time. Right. Because the melody a melody has to exist in time. You can't take one moment and say, this is a melody. But in order for that note to be part of the melody, you have to have some sort of awareness of the whole thing. So you're actually, I think narrative and melody are this thing that's existing. Actually, it's it's still in time, obviously, because we're sequentially embedded in time. But it's this thing that's leaning towards eternity. It's pushing in towards eternity. It's got a little bit more of it. There's this a little bit more of the sense in which you can like have the simultaneous awareness of how, of how there's a wholeness to time. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. I like that. Narrative and music both lean into eternity. Yes. Um, one of the things I was mentioning to Neil and Drew, and I don't know if I'm on the right track or not, but I was thinking about Wolfgang's uh, icon of the cosmos with the center and then the line and the, the sweep of the line being the periphery which is the corporeal world which is where we are um but when when we're in engrossed in music or we are um engrossed in a narrative it's as though 
we enter another space. <clears throat> it's it's almost as though time stops, but obviously that can't be right because we're still, while we're engrossed in that other space, we're still experiencing time. But it's but usually <clears throat> we're not moving about in space when that happens. And sometimes it happens when you're driving, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> you gotta be careful <laughs> yeah, so, you, so you are moving through space but so it made me think about that intermediary realm that he, where he says it's only time exists there and there's no space in the intermediary realm which is the realm of dreaming the realm of uh, spiritual truth reality experience somehow like uh, I think that I think I've got it that that's where he thinks of the the angels and the saints and all of that are in that intermediary realm. I don't, I never could quite understand the intermediary realm, but, but it's different than this realm somehow. Um, and when you're ready, let's go back to that. Yeah, go for it. Oh, okay. Okay. So yeah, I've actually been, I actually just was, I think this was, this actually illuminated some, some of the things Tomo was talking about. So one of, again, one of Daniel Tomo's really big points is the, critical necessity to recognize the immateriality of the intellect. And so when I hear Dr. Wolfgang Smith talking about this place where there's time, but no space, that, mm -hmm. that sounds like the realm of the immaterial, right? So it's things that exist in time and creation in created reality, but they're non-material and they're because, because space is a description of materiality of material volume. And so he, in, in his, I think it was in his conversation with you. And then in the, in the other one I listened to, he talks about how geometry was seen as it by the Greeks as the way is the way, let's say up from the, the corporeal realm. And I thought, okay, that one of the first time I heard it, I thought it was really weird, but then you and I, I'd gone back to read Toma and then we had a conversation and Daniel Toma's first example for the immateriality of the intellect is in fact a geometric example because he says, you, we, we're we're going we're gonna to work with the idea that the human mind is entirely embedded in material reality. You've seen lots and lots of triangles in your life, but you every triangle is at least infinitesimally off of a perfect triangle that has an ex, a precise internal angles of 180 degrees. There, I mean, and you could you can demonstrate with the uncertainty down at the quantum level that you actually can't have a triangle that is mathematically exactly structured with 180 degrees of internal angle it's impossible he says but you can very easily perfectly conceive of of a triangle with 180 degrees internal angle so that must be something that's not embedded in create there's not embedded in materiality it must be uh immaterial and i thought that's a very strange example but then we got around to wolfgang smith talking about how the the this intermediary realm the realm of the of of the spiritual or the intellect is what the Greeks understood to be accessed through geometry. So I love that. There's just very, very clear connection there in my mind. Mm -hmm. So what's, I think with, with narrative and music, we are, we're also, we're also doing that. And how can I get at this? Right. Because you think about a story and all sorts of things are happening in the story and they're not things where you are. So in that sense, there's, Again, like dream states, you're moving to somewhere else that's not 
embedded in, in the material, it's still temporal, right? It's still sequential. It's still told over time as a sequence, but it's no longer materially limited. Now, this is actually very, very closely in line with what Toma talks about with the heavenly intelligences, with the angels. So I, mm -hmm. I, I love this. And it actually connects really closely with this idea of um, self-completing movement. So hier the hierarchy of being is how internal is the movement. It's how um, intrinsic or imminent is it. And so you have you have the material, the mineral world where nothing, where it's everything is transitive. It happens to those things. They don't self-originate action. And then you have plants and then animals. And then, and they have particular kinds of movement, chemical and physical movement. But then when you get to humans, there's this other level, which is intelligence, which is because that's, it's your intelligence that allows you to hear a melody. And it's your intelligence that allows you to hear a story. And when you think about how quickly you could, with your body, say, recapitulate the story of uh, go through the story of say Ernest Shackleton's Antarctic expedition right in your body that would take you like two years to do the same thing that he did but in your mind you can sit down you, you can go through that story at a high level you can go through the story in in two minutes there's this sense in which the, the and you can go anywhere in your mind in a sense you can see that this movement towards towards less and less need of the material realm to act your intellect to take the Thomistic understanding, which is that all knowledge originates in the senses. Now, this is a really important thing, right? Because we are not like the angels. We are not merely spirits. We're not merely immaterial. We are hylomorphic creatures who are spiritual and animal. We're both. And so because of that, what we do is we go through this process of acquiring knowledge through our senses. And then once it's in our immaterial intellect, then we can do all kinds of stuff with it. You can go anywhere you've been, you know, you can go anywhere that you remember. You can imagine places, you can read things, you can do mathematics, you can work out. Look, I mean, it's even as you can work out. Think about the development of the intellect with mathematics. When a child is little, they can't do math in their head yet. They have to count it out on the, it's, it's a fit there. They have to see the, they have to see the knowledge in front of them. And so there's this, it's less self-completing. They have to bring matter into the process. But then when you're, once you know the math, oh, you can just do it up here. And the real math geniuses, they can do things that are totally beyond us. And they can they can sit there and just run through these complex uh, computations in their head. And then, bam, there they are. And I, I don't have the capacity to do that. The way I get around it is to go back into the material and use aids. So the angels, this is really interesting. The angels... They're, the way that they approach and their, their form of intelligence is actually the opposite of ours. So we move from individuals to principles. You look at a dog, you see another dog, you see this dog, you see that dog, you see that dog, and then you can have an idea of a dog. And then once you've done that, you recognize dogs all over the place. And then once you've seen enough different, say, dogs and cats and pigs, and also lizards, because we compare things. This is how our intel intelligence works. It works by comparing. A dog is not like a cat, but a cat and a dog are like each other in a way that they aren't like a lizard. Now you can form this principle of mammals, of mammalian life. And then you can vertebrate life. And so you can see how taxonomy, the way we've structured our ta taxonomy is like that. You can get to this high level of animal. There's some, see, right, an animal is way more abstract than a dog. 
which is more which and it's also more abstract than mammal which is more abstract than dog and it's it's these levels of abstraction so toma talks about the the spiritual intelligences the angels as being the reverse of that and the more intelligent an angel is the let's say the more fundamental its knowledge is. So you might have an angel that, and this is, is, is may sound really weird at first, but just go with it. You might have an angel to go back that, that understands dog and through dog, it knows every possible individual dog, right? So we go from the individual dog to this principle of dog and the angel starts with the principle of dogness and can see every possible permutation of the principle of dogness. Now, now you have two angels, one that under, that's been given the principle of dogness and one that's been given the principle of mammal. And the one that understands the principle of mammal has a greater intelligence than the one that understands the principle of dog because there's more contained within the, the idea of mammal than there is within dog. Dog is a subset of that. And so you could go on and on and on and up, and you can see how in this weird sense, the more simple the idea is, the more simple the principle is that the angel has been given, the vaster its intelligence. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. So, so there, and, and you can, you can even, you can even see this. We seek, that's the kind of knowledge that we're seeking with science. We want, we want these, you know, the theory of everything, right? We want mm -hmm. physicists are after the equation that, that contains everything in it, right? That's yeah. the grand unified theory. <laughs> the grand unified theory. And, and they're not going to accept something that's a whole bunch of, okay. So great. So, and if they get a grand unified theory, they're going to judge whether it's a good one or not based on how simple it is. And the simpler it is, the closer it is to being a good theory. Yes. So then you start to get just the faintest inkling of why it is that the theologians talk so much about the, about the simplicity of God, right? And how we shouldn't be scared of the divine simplicity because it's going to get us into some sort of static dull thing as opposed to some sort of dynamical process that you know is is incomplete and moving towards something else and like that's where it, it's no absolutely not there is you can you can trace these lines and now you may not have faith that they they intersect at some point above above our vision but you can certainly see this movement towards towards um increasing perfection containing everything and increasing simplicity containing everything because if it's the right kind of simplicity then it actually has a greater there's there's more contained within it so again you think about this idea of self-completion right so we're talking about how you and i if we want to understand the idea of dogness we start out with something external from ourselves individual dogs and then we, from that, we come in contact with our intellect is informed, right? We talk about being informed, right? That, that comes from the formal cause has been impressed on your intellect. And I still do this with my hand because anyway, because we, everyone assumes it's up here. Okay. Hold on. I want to take another little divert, little, little sidestep and just, cause I want to share how this stuff has been transforming my understanding of the world around me in a, in a way that I think is actually is Again, you're not, I don't feel like I'm laying anything aside. It's just, it's just getting richer. Okay, so we've talked about this notion of the, there, there, let's, how can I put this? There are three, there are three things that, that the, 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 
the medievals understood to be, let's say, the vital aspects of a of the rational soul of a person. And it was you had the in, you have the intellect, you had the intellect and the and the will. Let me get this right. You have the intellect and the will. And I can't remember there's this there's this whole discussion about how, oh, right, there it is. It's something like the spirit, a person's spirit is the way that their soul is united to their body, something like that. But it was understood that this, if you're a spiritual being, right, here we go. Spiritual beings have intellect and will. Those are the powers of spiritual beings. So humans are spiritual beings. So we have intellect. We have, we have, we have the intellect and we have the will. And angelic beings are also spiritual beings and they have an intellect and they have a will. Now, your spirit is united to your body in some unknown way. But we still associate those things with different parts of a physical person, right? This the whole notion of spirit and breath being connected. And I don't, you know, we can, we can go through that. But again, it's one of those etymological connections where in almost every language, spirit just meant breath, right? It's, it's just the same word. And then... We connected intellect with the head, right? With the brain or the head, depending on exactly, you know, how that all worked out. And then the will with the heart, something like that. Now, here's here's the insight that was really fascinating to me, Karen, is that we've got this notion of people as being, we're, we're hylomorphic beings, we're a soul material composite, right? We're both of them, we're a soul and a, we're a soul and mat, we're soul and matter, we're form and matter. And as long as those two are connected together, we continue to persist as a being. Now, the way that a person dies, and this is going to be a little bit gruesome, but I'm going to go for it. The way that a person dies is if you destroy their brain or you destroy their heart or their lungs, because a person can live through anything else pretty much. If they die from something else, like losing their arm, it's not because they die because their arm is gone. They die because of blood loss, right? <laughs> Or if something goes wrong with your gastrointestinal, you know, your GI tract or something, it doesn't, that doesn't kill you. What kills you is the fact that you can no longer sustain your brain and heart and your lungs. If that's, if those three are functional, then you will continue to persist and you can have quadriplegics, you can have quad, quadruple amputees, you can lose your eyes and your ears and, you know, but if your brain and your heart and your lungs are functioning, then you will continue to live. But if through any at any level of destruction from the biochemical all the way up to just physical destruction of those structures, destruction of structures, interesting, then you cease to live. And so it's really interesting that the medieval said, this is where the life of a person is, it's in their spirit. And we talk about dying as like their spirit departing from their body. And it's like, for whatever reason, it would appear that the, the actual physical structures of the brain, the heart and the lungs correspond to the way in which a spirit of a person coheres and if you destroy them then the spirit no longer is connected to the body and then you're and then you're dead so there's this beautiful thing where it's like all of this biomedical information that we've developed over the last you know 200 years tells us nothing more fundamental than <laughs> the seat of the intellect the seat of the will and the seat of the, and where your spirit resides is like what keeps you alive <laughs> i just love it i like it's it's so it's Thomas' point that we haven't, we're not, we're not changing the way that we understand the world. We are refining it, 
we're putting more detail into it. But the fundamental understanding of the world is not changing. And I, I love that. Well, yeah, because all, I mean, all of the scientific discoveries and, and formulas and everything else, they may describe these things, but they don't explain them. Yes. Right. So that's that's this notion. Right. So great. So let's go back to this the whole notion of of let's let's start. I think there's some still still some some good meat to get off the bones here with this notion of the intellect, how we think, how angels think. So this goes back to that that idea of red light. Did you have something? Well, I was just gonna throw in, you know, there's that very interesting verse. Angels long to look into these things. Mm-hmm. And when you were describing angels, you were talking about them as as having intellect and will. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that humans get all of our knowledge through our senses. But I'm guessing that angels don't have senses in the same way that we have senses. And so maybe part of why the angels long to look into the things that human beings experience is that they can't, they don't, they may have a, an intellectual understanding of what senses do, but they don't have the embodied experience of what senses do in in informing a human person. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Let's pick that up for a second because that actually connects beautifully with our discussion of music and narrative earlier. So I I, I think that this is Saint Augustine again, but this notion of right there's this notion of way back in Christianity of the fallen angels. And the good angels. And the way St. Augustine looked at it is fascinating. He said, every angel, because as an intellect, is capable of knowing its own excellence. Just as we are, we are self-knowing beings, we can reflect on ourselves. That's a capacity, a power of our intellect. The angels can know their own excellences. And so the moment the in the instant of their creation, you can't even say the moment, when they are created, they're given a choice to to remain in their own excellence or to look outside of their excellence to its own to its source which is to say to god and augustine's understanding was that those that remained in themselves were the became the fallen angels and those that turned towards god are the good angels and because angels are not embodied creatures they're not let's say acting out a story the same way we are and so, again, I know that there's some disagreement on this, on this notion that they, you know, of in terms of universal redemption and things like that. But I'm just, I'm going to take what I understand to be the orthodox view, which is the good angels, the, the fallen angels will not be redeemed. The difference between a bad angel and a bad person is that we, we're constantly being given new knowledge if we open ourselves up to it, if we avail ourselves to it, we constantly have the opportunity to see more of the story in a way that the angels don't because they're it's something like and this is now i'm about to i'm about to throw out some conjecture and a better thomist than me could get and there are people who could tell you better than i could but their knowledge is intrinsic to them right so they're created with that knowledge with those principles they don't angels in that sense angels don't learn they but we do and so when you can't learn, there's no possibility of redemption, but we are constantly, as we, as you're talking about this, a whole notion that we're changing all the time and that we're, you know, I'm not in one sense, I'm not the person that I was yesterday. Mm-hmm. Now, the notion is my substance remains un, unchanged, which is why you can look at me and say, 
Oh, it's Ted again. It's the same mm-hmm. Ted, right? It's the, the reason that I'm that I remain the same, unlike that character in James Joyce's Ulysses, who says, Oh, you know, different me borrowed that money. You know, all that me is gone. So I don't have to pay the money back. It's like, <laughs> no, substance remains the same. And so we can we can discuss this. But <clears throat> because I'm limited and I'm embedded in time and things are unfolding for me, there's always this possibility that I'm going to, I'm gonna see it. I'm gonna see. I'm going to see, let's say, the the transcendent excellence of God and turn towards that, right? Metanoia, repentance, however you want to talk about it. I have that pot that that capacity is afforded to me by my limitedness and my changeability. And so we tend to think about limitedness and changeability as negatives, but they're actually a mercy to us because if you don't have limitedness and you don't have changeability, then you no longer have the the, the the potential for redemption, that that turning towards. And so this is the notion that we are moving towards a greater degree of like internalization of change is actually, I think, really closely connected with this notion of repentance. Because if you think about Oh boy, this is right on the edge. This is right on the edge of what I can articulate, but I'm going to try because I think it's really good. If you think about what what repentance involves, it's something like stepping out of your experience of life enough to understand that you could have acted differently. Yeah. And that there are things better than yourself, right? So maybe I've never tried to outline this before, but something like something like that, that you have to recognize that you could have acted. There's a the pot that let's say there you can step into an imaginal space of of different of a different course, and then that there are things above yourself. And both of those are, in a sense, things that are um, out of your immediate experience. And so, in order, repentance is a call towards a movement out of your, say, determ- this, this notion of determinism in your life into something else. It's that movement that Daniel Toma talks about of a movement towards a greater degree of self-movement, of self-actual, of, it's not self-actualization, it's self-change, right? It's self-actuated change. It's not, you know, the, the path to repentance is not being hit in the head with a rock or being shoved on the ground or having a chemical injected into you. Those are, but it's an those are, it's an acknowledgement that you are um, that you that you have a choice that yes. and you have had choices and that um, and that you have made choices that have put you on the wrong path and that the way back is to turn around on the path and get back to where the turning took place and then get back on the path. That's the that's the the turning is to go back, or at least to be prepared to go back, to be to be able to be willing to go back, not to shift, to stay inside yourself enough so that you're not shifting the blame onto somebody else, either God or some other person, right? Um, but there's also this beautiful verse that don't you know that it is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance? Mm -hmm. And um, like you were saying earlier, limitedness and changeability are really a gift. 
they're the gift that um, give us the potential for repentance and limitedness and changeability. If you're not repentant, feel like uh, feel like manacles. They feel like you're being crushed and destroyed. <clears throat> it's, it's like but, Jordan Peterson's. It's like Jordan Peterson's son, right? In that story, right? Because this this notion of the unbreakable, you know, his un mm -hmm. his unbreakable son, his unhurtable son, is mm -hmm. essentially to to make him not be limited to to bring him in a sense beyond the possibility of repentance mm -hmm. and change. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so, so repentance is a gift. Yes. So it's not something we can gin up for ourselves, but, but there, there is some way in which this limitedness and changeability are gifted to us are a vertical causation. <laughs> yes. Yeah. You no. Know? Um, and I, I always go back to this idea of anomaly, that thing that ends up in front of us that's an obstacle in our path is always a gift. We always see it as not a gift. We always see it as a disaster. We always see it as chaos. But but it's a gift because it's going to do one of maybe three things. It's either going to strengthen us so that we know how to cross over it or it's going to help us to shift our perspective so that we can move around it or it's going to crush us so that we can repent <laughs> and develop limitedness and changeability, you know, but it's always a gift. And I, I think that's one of the hardest things to articulate. It's the hardest thing to talk about to somebody who's going through really intense suffering because you don't want to be, don't want to lack empathy for a person who's going through suffering you know there are there are traumas that are inexplicable and yet somehow i really believe that somehow those things are all a gift yeah. so oh wow okay so are you familiar with tolkien's notion i'm just it's just first of all i karen i know you're reading through um the space the ransom trilogy again yeah, I, I've read that hideous strength. I'm trying to make my way through um, Out of a Silent Planet and Paralandra. And I have to acknowledge, it's a tough go for me. It just doesn't draw me the same way. That hideous strength really draws me. Do you, Out do you of a Silent Planet and Paralandra just don't have the same power on me. Do you remember that conversation between <laughs> Dr. Dimble and, and Mrs. Dimble where it, it, she, it says that she was trying to, something like she tried to avoid the ever-present danger that their conversation would turn into a merely literary discussion. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I'll be honest, I feel like this has been happening a little bit because I know that I came to talk to you about biology, Thomistic um, biology, but um, that notion. So Tolkien's, are you familiar with Tolkien's concept of the eucatastrophe? It's the, <clears throat> it's a, the good catastrophe, right? The good catastrophe. That's right. And he, he talks about that in his, in his essay on fairy stories um it, it's sort of the end he considers it to be like the, the heart of the fairy story and what you're describing is with this that the anomaly is is the eucatastrophe it's the thing that that brings about goodness in a inconceivable way like you couldn't have thought of it 
and yet it does and it and it comes from the bottom and takes you to the top and the lord and i i think consciously or unconsciously tolkien wrote maybe the most pure eucatastrophe in the eastern western canon recent western canon when he wrote the lord of the the end of the return of the king with with the everything happening in the crack of doom with smeagol taking the ring and destroying it you know it just the way that it all fits together so perfectly um but the notion this notion of the eucatastrophe the problem with the eucatastrophe and the problem with the anomaly as you're saying is that you can't see it from the beginning right at the beginning you can't and this is that whole thing of coherence again you can't see how it all fits together so this is the this is the thing i've been chewing on a lot recently which is that i i think that what we're doing with stories when we tell them over and over and over is this the stories that people love the most are i think are the ones that they they the stuff happens and it it's just kind of happening and you have this sense that it's going to all fit together and you can't see it you can't see it and you can't see it and you can't see it and then bam it all hit, it, it all fits together and and the the indication that we are drawn to that so deeply is the fact that 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 can make you cry right it can make you cry to know how it all comes together and what's even more amazing is you can know the story. You can know the story inside and out, and you can still get to that point where it all comes together and it can still make you cry. And you think, oh, what is that? And I think, well, it's the eschaton. It's the apocalypse is what it is. And so I think what we're doing with these stories on a, on a low level is we're reading them and, and you're going through, you're creating, you're, because a virtue is a habitual, it's a habitual disposition. And so in order for something to be a habit, it has to be repeated over and over. But the problem is for your life, you don't get to repeat your life. You don't get to do it over and over, but your life is doing the same thing. The stuff, things come into it and you don't see how they all fit together, but you still have to move forward and you still have to exercise choice. And so you can become bitter and resentful and nihilistic and decide it doesn't all fit together or I have to make it all fit together by going and grabbing this stuff and saying, this is how it's going to be and I need money and pleasure or whatever. Or you can have faith and faith, not in the theological sense, but faith, I'm calling it natural faith. I don't have a better term for it yet, but it's, it's something like natural faith, which says, I've seen it happen in the stories enough times that I know that it can happen to me. Because when you're in the middle of it, you can't see it. I mean, it, that's structural. That's how it works. And so I, I actually think this is partially why we like detective novels so much, because that's what the detective novel is. You have this whole, you know, something disastrous happens, like someone's murder, and it really grabs our attention. Oh, my goodness. And we're all focused on the murder. That's the one thing we're looking at. But you could look at anything. It could be anything. And, and you start looking at that and all the details around it. They don't make sense. They don't fit together. Sometimes it seems like they contradict each other. There are these impossibilities. How could it be that this person was here at this time and you know how could someone die when all the windows and doors are locked and you know causality seems to be violated and we live in this place of of ambiguity and apparent contradiction and paradox and then and then it's like a small you catastrophe right when hercule poirot or nero wolf or sherlock says no 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 here it is it all i love, I love nero wolf yes <laughs> it it all fits it all fits and, and and it's not like it's not just 
the relief of, oh, I solved the puzzle. I think it's a much deeper relief of my life could do that one day. And we get it a little bit, right? We get it a little bit at times where all of a sudden, oh, I see how it works. And, you know, I met this person and it all fit. Or, you know, I read this book and you see these. But like no one's life actually fits together like that because things run on and you meet people and then they disappear from your life or you have children and you, you don't live to see what their lives are like later on and on and on and on. And there's, there are all of these, it's just impossible. You always have loose ends. There's always these threads running off into the world. And what do you, what do you do with those? Are you going to demand that reality manifests itself as an utter complete hole around you? It's like, of course not, you know, that's an absurdity. And so then, so, so we're left with something like the possibility of saying it doesn't mean anything or no one can know what it means or it means something and I just am going to, I'm going to have faith that it will be revealed. So. Well, and I also think that um, part of what's so attractive about those kinds of stories is there's always some sort of a little community or some little team of people who are all working together mm -hmm. and, and usually it's a gaggle of misfits of one kind or another, or each person has a particular strength or a particular weakness. And, and they're all in this same space and, and this thing is being solved in that space. So I think that's part of it too. And, and I think the big thing about this natural faith idea that you're talking about is goes back to what Peterson always talks about when he says, you, if you can trust in the goodness of being, then you can move forward speaking the truth, regardless of what the consequences might be. If you fall into the chaos, but you have a trust in the goodness of being, then when you're in the chaos, you can take a deep breath and look around and try to see what's in the patterns there or try to see where the goodness resides, even in that dark and scary place. And um, I, I just think that shift in perspective is so important to, to survival. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, one of the ways that I put it, and of course I'm not, I'm not going to try not to ever lead with negatives, but I'm trying to articulate something that's like a profoundly anti-consequentialist. Right. I think that I think that. Tell me first that, what a consequentialist is, and then you can tell me what something is that's profoundly anti-consequentialist. This is, this is why you don't. This is exactly why you don't lead with negatives. So a consequent consequentialist morality saying you judge whether or not something is good or not by its outcome. Oh, OK. And my argument is essentially that's fine. But the the outcome can only be measured in terms of the entire the totality of creation. So through, yes. all, through all of time that's when you know that the, the consequences in the end. And so stories, I think, are this good stories are this process of getting out of the consequentialist mindset into saying, look, the threads and the effects of my actions go far beyond what I can see. And so you can see that in the negative sense, certainly. And, and in the, you know, in the Jewish law, there's this great articulation of that, which is right. Those who break the law, God will punish their children to the third and the fourth generation. You think that's terrible. It's like, yeah, but it's true. But then he goes on to say that those who follow my law, I will bless to the thousandth generation. And so the, I, the notion of, and, and again, to take Daniel Tome, and tell me if this train gets too loud, take Daniel Tome's notion of 
that there's this that there's real meaning in creation that we can have real contact with it and there's real purpose we can look at you know where is look where is the transition point from non-living to living it's in plants plants are the hinge of non-living materiality to living to, to to life and how do plants come about they come about by a seed falling in the ground it seems to die and then life comes from that and it's like that's the movement from non non-living to living and in our own lives what stories can teach us is they can teach us that we can we can treat our every action like a seed and our whole life like a seed you can bury it in the ground and not you don't have to see it come up tomorrow or today right it could be 100 years from now and if you really do have that kind of faith right which is not supernatural faith it's natural faith if you have natural faith then you can believe that it was worth it, even if you don't see. And so, right, what does our Lord say? Blessed are you because, you you know, you have seen and therefore you believe. Blessed are those who, who have not seen and yet still believe, right? It's that same principle. I mean, on on, on just like the basic level of life. Um, and I you you could tell me where this was. I know one of the one conversation you listened to, that you made that I listened to, may have been Wolfgang again, but you were talking about this how maybe the generation before you, you're talking about making meals, how mothers just knew how to cook good meals. And they didn't have to have all this crazy knowledge about, you know, nutrient balance and, and, you know, which ingredients and what, you know, these things about um, say like essential amino acids and things like that. No, it yeah. didn't matter. I think there's something similar where we were given, we were handed down, which is to say it was traditional. We were handed down these ways of living that we could trust were the right way to do things like to be patient to 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 put in the time to work slowly to have children to be invested in a community and no one was saying things they, people weren't like you know they weren't like i'm gonna go down to the pub and have a drink with my friends because it's good that we should be you know instantiating a community in the small english village <laughs> Of course, <laughs> but but they really were still planting those seeds of a stable, you know, of a stable human community, and this connects right back to this notions, the notion of primary, secondary, and tertiary perfection, is that we were given a whole model for that, an unconscious model that we knew what bodily health was, we knew what manners and capacity and good skills were, how to cook a good meal, how to chop a tree down, whatever it was, how to repair, you know, leather harnesses many things that are irrelevant now, but then how all that fit together, how we should go to church, how we should have families, how we should go to the pub, you know, these things that formed these levels of perfection for human society. And the fact that we were always telling stories through all of that should tell, indicate to us that that was not a, look, this is the, okay. If there's like one thing that I wish that people could understand, it's that the goodness of the world does not, come about through some sort of fatalistic necessary process. The good of the world comes because in, in, in as far as it lies with people, because individuals wake up every single day and they do the things that bring about goodness later, whether they never live to, whether they live to see it or not. And so we have this notion that it's like, Oh, it doesn't matter what I do because you know, everything will be fine and stable and ordinary forever. No, every, every scrap of, Good, good, ordinary human life comes about from a combination of the mercy of God on this world 
and people waking up and living that story out every single day. And that's what this notion of perfection is about. It's about, it's about that, about, about acknowledging that reality is intrinsically good. And that if we live out these patterns that have been given to us, that we will be able to give that gift to people after us and the people around us, even and it doesn't matter if you can trace out those lines of causality. That's just madness. Like, honestly, it's just madness. It's just madness to try to figure that stuff out. I mean, right. You think about, you think about the idea of, okay. So the notion of having a child, it's like, who is that child? You can't know. When will you know who that child was? You'll know when history's over. And so if your whole idea is a consequentialist notion of, well, I could have this child and they could suffer terribly, or I could have this child and they could have caused other people to suffer terribly. You can get yourself into all sorts of binds where you could never make a decision there. But if you trust in the story, you say, being is good. It is good that people are. There's a pattern for people to live in that's good. And I'm going to inhabit that pattern. I'm going to live in it. And I'm going to do that through this sort of natural faith that things, that it's the right thing to do. And like, that it'll be good and it'll bring good to others. So like, we just have to wake up and do those things every day because they're good. And you don't. So when you were talking about consequentialism, I had the feeling you said at one point that um, consequentialism, you you could only call it tr true or proper if if it is judged by the final cosmic outcome, the, the mm -hmm. outcome at the end of time. Is there a word for that belief of um, if? Well, let let me back up a second. You mentioned before about the, the blessings and the curses, that mm -hmm. if, if you do this, you're going to be blessed for a thousand generations. If you do that, you're going to be cursed for three generations. I'm wondering if that language in the scripture, if what it actually is getting at is there is a way that the world is, and when you when you align with the way that the world is or the way the world is supposed to be, when you align with that, um, then blessings accrue. Not always what you, you're not always going to get what you want or what you think is a blessing, but because sometimes even the anomalies are blessings, right? But, um, but when you do those things that are, um, negative or go against the what would you call it the sound practices in scripture that there are natural consequences that fall out from that and those natural consequences are look like curses I guess what I'm trying to say is is it a punishment that comes down from on high or is it a punishment that in one sense we visit on ourselves because we have chosen the wrong path yeah, i mean that is that is a really profound question and um i mean my 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 first response would be something like i don't think i can untangle the two right because god creation he's the one who created it so you know it's patterned after himself and so mm -hmm. you'd say well is it is it just the natural 
ordering of things or is it God's supernatural intervention? And I, I just, I, I think the longer that I go, the harder it is to tell those apart. I mean, sometimes you see, say, uh, efficient causes overridden because there's some higher action. And then we call that a miracle. But, you know, Lewis in Miracles makes this point of all of the miracles that we see in our when our Lord is walking on this earth are, and then I, I would go say go on, going on with, you know, the lives of the saints, with the miracles of the saints on this earth, that they're all the same kinds of things that God does all the time, right? So the miracle of changing water into wine. And I, just, I love, like, this is so, this is so good. Yeah. It's like, look, that's the only place that wine ever came from. <laughs> <laughs> right it's it never came from anywhere except water now they may have gone through this more circuitous path of of a grapevine you know of a grape plant taking it up and then producing these 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 grapes and then going through this process of fermentation and then and then and then so on and so on and then you get wine but it's like it's the same place and i had a i had a lovely conversation with nate heil a couple of weeks ago and we ended up talking a lot about sort of poetry and fairy stories and this notion of what are they doing and I think I, I, G.K. Chesterton has got this lovely quote where he says, we tell stories about waters that, uh, sorry, rivers that flow with wine so that for one wild moment, we remember that they flow with water. And so I, I would say a lot of that, trying to untangle those things, does my life go well when I live? Because the question is something like, does my life, when I live rightly, does my life go well because it's aligned with the natural order of things or because it's aligned with, because God is, intervening on my behalf and it's like boy i <laughs> i you know i don't know because the, the, okay look the reason that i hesitate to answer that is because then what we do is we tend to we make this move and it's partially because of how we've been raised which is for the last you know 100 years or so which is if i can delineate the efficient and material cause of a blessing in my life that i've therefore removed god's agency in it that's the thing i don't buy i don't mm -hmm. i don't want to live there but I, let, let's let's take that statement about blessing. I would say blessing, blessing is not what you want. What you should want is blessing, right? That's that's kind of like the whole project. The whole project is saying not, I need to be given what I want, but I want I need to want what I've been given. Yes, that's like that's the whole game. That's Psalm, the whole. Project. Isn't that Psalm thirty? 37 4 huh? yes that's exactly right clean. give me the desires of my heart yes I'll i used to think that meant my heart desires certain things give me those things but what it means i mean i, I had this aha moment one day driving through a blizzard on the way to graduate school <laughs> that that what it's really saying is give me the right desires that's well right because doesn't it say you know Seek it's something like seek the Lord with your whole heart and he will give you the he, and he will grant you seek the Lord and he will grant you the desires of your heart. You know, it's funny. I had that exact same realization when I was walking on campus in school. So oh. there you go. There must be something <laughs> about that. That's that's exactly right. Like the trick is to want to want God or to want, say, the goodness of being to put it in Peterson's language, which I think just lowers it a level. But because you can't. Because you can't be in a personal relationship to the nature of being unless you understand that the being is fundamentally personal. But anyway, that's sort of the thing. But yeah, it's exactly that. It's but here and and then because this is at least nominally about Toma, here's here's what I'll say about his work there. We got derailed, didn't we? <laughs> in like in the best sort of way. Um, 
in the best sort of way is that is that the reality i mean you said this but i just want to make it clear reality has to have a structure before you can pattern you can accept it there has to be a way of things before you can go that way and so you have to believe things like the whole is greater than the sum of the parts you have to know that you don't believe it you know it you have to know that you have to know that reality is hierarchical and ordered that it moves towards that life is more fundamental than non-life that being is more fundamental than non-being and all of the other things you have to you have before you can come to terms with reality you have to know what those things are and so if you're going to because and if the problem is if you don't do that you're going to do exactly what you were saying which is you come into this in fundamentally antagonistic relationship with reality and those anomalies are going to come and then you're not going to see them as a blessing you're going to see them as something that got in the way of you ordering things the way you want and this is lewis's point about technology and magic being different from science and religion the project of science and religion is to order appropriately is to order yourself after what is it's to order your intellect in the case of science and to order your soul in the case of religion towards true reality and magic and technology are about using let's say i would diagram it as something like using supernatural and natural means to order reality to yourself right and the, and and the sort of Thomistic catholic way of saying that is you have to order your desires right the whole project is the ordering of human desire that's the thing you are the fall before the fall our intellect ruled our passions and our intellect was illuminated by god and so we desired what we ought to when we ought to have and then after that it, it flips and we're we we have this whole problem Karen, I just, I, I think you'll enjoy this. I met this, there's a wonderful young man at um, Chino. I wish I'd gotten to talk to him longer, but we're having a conversation about sort of spiritual practices in his life. And he said, you know, he's, he wasn't following any particular way, but he said that he meditates sometimes. And I asked him when he, like, what was it? You know, what's, why do you meditate? He said, well, because sometimes what I want gets in the way of my desires. It's like, that's so, this is, that's the whole, that's just us. That's just us, right? There's this thing in us that says you desire goodness. And yet what you want gets in the way of your desire of goodness. And so to quote St. Augustine, right? The way up is the way down. And, and humility, humility is the gateway to all the virtues. And so if you want to get there, you have to, you have to be like the angels. You have to be like the good angels. You have to turn from your own belief, your own excellences, right? The good things that you're drawn to that are secondary goods. And you have to turn towards God, to, towards goodness, towards goodness. I was going to say goodness itself. I don't towards goodness. And then everything else will fall down from that. And, and then you can see the anomalies as goodness. And I know that it sounds really great when someone, you know, is telling you this on a podcast and then you're going to wake up in the morning and someone's going to bother you or something bad is going to happen, something that seems bad is going to happen to you. And then, right. But this is why we do it now. Because like you were saying, how do you tell someone who's suffering this stuff? You can't, mm -hmm. you have to do it before the suffering comes. And I, you know, I remember when our, you know, I'll just say like one of the most intense period of sufferings in our life. And it was when our second daughter was, um, she was born into the, she was in the NICU from as soon as she was born. She was there for four months. And I, it was, it was terrible. I mean, I, I won't sugarcoat it. It was terrible. Um, it wasn't terrible in the ways that I thought it would be at all. But I do remember at that time, how can I put this? I could see how in the past I had all these opportunities to, 
to choose what I wanted over what I knew was true. And I never did it perfectly. I'm not, I'm not holding that up, but like I could see there were times where I had, I'd had these moments of, I could, I could do the expedient thing. I could believe the expedient thing. I could believe the comfortable thing. I could believe the enjoyable thing. And I didn't. And it was actually in that time of crisis and tragedy where I could feel myself being held up by that commitment to, to truth and reality because because it had gotten hard, I had been doing it when it was easy. And then when it got hard, mm-hmm. I kept doing it. And, and I, I could, I could look up and I could, and I could, I could see things that I wouldn't have been able to see. Otherwise I could look up out of that suffering. I could step back far enough and realize that it was all part of this whole thing. And I was in the middle of it. I wasn't at the end, right? It wasn't her, her birth and her suffering was not, was not the apocalypse it revealed all kinds of things in my life, but like the story was not over at all. And if we had drawn the line there, if we had, again, that sort of consequentialism, if we had said, look, I guarantee you that by the time she's old enough to understand this question, if I asked you, Dora, would you, would you like us to not have had you because of the suffering you experienced then? Like, of course not. Of course you wouldn't say, Oh, it would have been better if I hadn't existed. But when you're in it, how do you see that? You know, we didn't know how it was going to turn out. We didn't know if we were going to, she was going to stay alive. We didn't know if she was going to be physically damaged the rest of her life. We didn't know if she was going to be mentally damaged the rest of her life. But there's this fundamental state of faith there that says it was the right decision to have a child. And so we can trust that however we see it come out and we, we've had the unspeakable blessing of seeing it turn out really well, really soon. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. It, it, uh, this is the absurdity of it. When you submit yourself to reality in that way, look, okay. I just like, I have to tell the story because of how profound it is. She, so she had some really crazy issues with her internal anatomy and it looked like she wasn't, she wasn't going to her. One of her lungs was never going to develop. Both of her lungs were severely restricted when she was, when she was in the womb. That's fine when you're getting all of your oxygen from your umbilical cord. But then once you're out, there then you've got to get it from your lungs and so she was on she was on cardiac bypass because she couldn't get enough oxygen in her lungs even though she was intubated with a ventilator and so you know we're going through this process and like one of her lungs starts to inflate and you because they're taking x-rays like twice a day and we can see them you can see how big they are and you can see how oxygenated they are and one of her lungs is getting there so the other one's not responding to this at all it's been weeks in and we're having conversations with the doctor, like, you know, what does this mean long-term? Is she going to be on oxygen the rest of her life? No, you know, lungs can, again, this whole notion of, of, of purpose in organisms, right? You can have, she, the doctor told us like, there are children who are, and adults who are okay, who only have one lung because the body is moving towards this appropriately oxygenated state. And that one lung will over will compensate enough that you can, you can manage. Well, the way this story ends, this little story, right? We're taking this little story is that her other lung ends up completely inflating and oxygenating. And I remember talking with my wife saying, we feel like we're the lucky ones. We're the lucky ones. We're the blessed ones. Our daughter has two lungs. And you think about the fact that she's still in the NICU and we have no idea how this is going to end and COVID's coming down on us. It's like, because that's what was happening. And it's like, <laughs> think, think about the fact that we could be, we could be sitting there 
and feel overwhelmed with the blessing that our daughter has two lungs. It's like most kids have two lungs. Shouldn't you be mad that she's still in the hospital? It's like, no, of course not. And that's not how that felt at all. It was, it was the, the right response then was one of profound gratitude. And I think, you know, if I could live my life like that all the time, if I could see everything in my life, like my daughter's second lung, right, which I could absolutely see owed to me. I could, I could stand in a place of saying, I, this is, I deserve this. You know, I should, I should be hurt that whatever, whatever, whatever. And so I think about this all the time in the, you know, in the mass, you have the consecration, which in the Catholic understanding is that's the most important thing that happens in the universe is transubstantiation and communion and our union with God there. And if you think back from that, okay, what are the things that we're saying as we're moving towards that? And this actually if we if we ever make it around to the third part of Daniel Thomas' work, you'll see this you'll see this movement because he talks about how the liturgies. Well, he doesn't say the liturgy is patterned after reality. He says reality is patterned after the, after the liturgy, which is. But he's but you see you have you have the sanctus, the holy holy holy, right? It's the things that the the angels that are closest to God sing. This is what we get from from the you know these visions in, in scripture is, and so so you can see this like okay, there's the body and blood of Christ. And what do you do as you're getting near it? You say the things that the angels who are in the in the direct presence of God say. And then what's before that? Well, what's before that is this exchange between the priest and, and the people there who are offering the mass with him. And they say, and I'm going to give you the English translation. He says, lift up your hearts. And we say, we have lifted them up to God. And then he says, let us give thanks. And our response is, it is right and just. And then he says, truly it is right and just our duty and our salvation always and everywhere to give you thanks. So when I think about that, when I see, what I see there is that if we are going to be saved, if we are going to act justly, that our fundamental orientation towards God or towards reality, or however you want to say this is one of gratitude. And if you don't have natural faith, right? That the story coheres in the end, somehow the stories cohere. I don't know that you can have gratitude. There's all sorts of things that you can't have gratitude about right now because you don't see how it works. But at least according to the mass, it is our duty and our salvation to give thanks always and everywhere. And so there's this, this is why it's so, so just, <laughs> words fail me, so important that we tell the right stories because if we don't, we won't have the faith that will let us be grateful. And if we, if we're not grateful, look, if we're not grateful, we are going to tear reality apart, trying to make it look the way we want. Like that is, that's my reading of history. My reading of history is for the last 200 years, we've given up on this notion of giving thanks and we are going to tear reality apart bit by bit, atom by atom. I mean, we, we've broken, we've done alchemy. We've turned lead into gold. We're doing all the stuff that the medievals, that the, that the Renaissance sorcerers were trying to do. We do all that stuff and we're not any happier for it. And it's like, what are we doing? We will tear the world apart unless we figure out how to be grateful. <laughs> so yeah, there it is. Always and everywhere there, to give thanks. There it is. Always and everywhere to give thanks. And that, Gratitude and humility. You said humility is the gateway to all the virtues. Well, Augustine said that. I'm not going to take credit. Well, 
<laughs> okay, but I I also think about um, C.S. Lewis's comment that courage is every virtue at the sticking point. Mm, yes. So we can think about the chiastic structure here, and we think about humility being the gateway to all the virtues, and the virtues come down to the sticking point, which is courage. Mm. And if you have the courage in in all the virtues, then mm -hmm. you can you you move out into this grateful place, and um, that gratitude is what trusts that it will all work out in the future. So mm. there's this is probably a very imperfect analogy, but but there is something about humility courage and gratitude that sort of take care of everything in one place yeah. and and i was thinking about you in the um in the hospital you can reflect now that before that thing happened in the hospital you had gone through this time of training where you had always attempted to make the correct response in situations where desires came up and to do the right thing and I would say that many people, if not most people in that situation would be saying, I did all the right things. And then this is what you give me, God. Mm. But you didn't go that direction. You went the other direction to say, mm. God was using that to train me so that in this moment, I can trust him absolutely. And with that absolute trust, then you could rest in that assurance of his goodness and you could have gratitude and humility in that moment and make it through what was a crushing four months. Um, and to have a memory of the beauty of that time because God was so close to you then. Wow. Wow. <laughs> it's hard to see that in myself but yeah thank you for that yeah that's um yeah that's that's really something to ponder mm. well we've gone all we've gone we've gone all the way up and all the way down today <laughs> yeah yeah and and so we got we got through one part <laughs> there were three parts we got through one part and yeah. the next part is the vestige of Eden, I think. Is that correct? We've well, we've covered we've covered that some. I you know, that's a lot of this notion of of the hierarchy of being and um li life is more fundamental than non-life, than non-living. Um, and and some of the the notions of the you know, the the different kinds of beings that we see of plant and animal. And, and so, so next time we can move on to this whole idea of the liturgy. Yes, the, the image of eternity and the okay. end of human and the purpose of human life. Yes, absolutely. That sounds um, good. I'm going to have yes. to wrap it up because we've got company coming for dinner and I've got to go buy some food. <laughs> <laughs> There's a, a week. <laughs> love, love to quote Richard Wilbur, the poet Richard Wilbur, love calls us to the things of this world. Um, yeah. Thank you so much, Karen. This is... Just yeah, that reminds me, I have to clean the toilets before they get here, too. <laughs> <laughs> it's always good to go from the thinky-talky to the 
cleaning of toilets. This is this is what it is, right? This is you're bringing the refinement of philosophy to the ordinary things of life. There it is. Yeah. <laughs> the it's way been great, Ted. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful rest of your day, Karen. Yeah, you too.